You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. and welcome to Musicals with Cheese, a podcast where I usually try to get Andrew to like musical theater, but now we've got a different Andrew. In fact, we got the most famous Andrew we've ever had on, and the better Andrew. Today, I am joined by composer, lyricist, Andrew Lippa, who you might know as the composer of wonderful things such as John and Jen, Big Fish the Musical, I am Ann Hutchinson, I am Harvey Milk, the Adams Family Musical, Jerry Christmas, John and Jen, A Little Princess, The Wild Party, and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Andrew, we're so honored to have you on to our show. It really, really is an honor. Hello, I'm honored to be on. <laughs> That's great. Um, this is going to just be a free-form discussion where I talk with Andrew about both the things that he has done in the past and how he came to that point, as well as the things he's likely going to do in the future. So, Andrew, on the off chance that there's one person listening that doesn't already know who you are, give us a little background of who you are and just what you want them to know about uh, you. I imagine the people listening to this program may have heard one or two of my songs. Uh, I am uh, I am a man, uh, that's, and I write songs. And uh, sometimes I write um, whole musicals, and sometimes I write just the music. Um, but most times I write the music and lyrics to musicals and uh, I've been doing it. I'm, I've been doing it for quite a while. My first musical was a little two-hander called John and Jen that premiered in New York city in 1995. And uh, as you meant, you mentioned uh, quite a list there of uh, titles and uh, I've been writing musicals and producing records and uh, writing songs for theatrical events and contexts for all these uh, 23 years. So it's been a, a wonderful, wonderful ride. Now let's talk about how you ended up in musical theater. Was it always something that you found driving to you, or did it seem like something you just kind of fell into naturally? Well, when I was in high school, I was very musical from the very beginning of my life, and I sang, and I still do sing. Uh, I've sung on a few of my own shows. And um, when I was in high school, I was in 10th grade, I auditioned for and was cast in a production of our high school musical, which was uh, The Pajama Game. And I um, had a quandary, which was um, many of my friends had stopped after their bar mitzvahs, had stopped going to Hebrew school. We used to go to Hebrew school three days a week after school or on uh, a couple of days a week after school and one day on Sunday, one time, uh, one period on Sunday, uh, once a week. And after people had their bar mitzvah, they would stop going to Hebrew school. And I kept going because I liked it. They had this thing 
where I grew up called Hebrew High School, and it was um, it, you could keep doing Jewish learning and 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 you know get deeper into Jewish learning um, as you got older. And so I was uh, enrolled in Hebrew High School, and I got cast in a musical, which was going to conflict. I was going to have to pick one or the other. And I went to my parents who were very, um, they were very Jewish. They still are. And, uh, my parents, uh, I said I wanted to be in the musical and to my surprise and to my pleasure, my parents said I could quit Hebrew school and they encouraged me to be in the musical. And, um, and that, that was the beginning of my love of musicals. I had seen a couple before then, but, but when I got into 10th grade, that was when it took off. And then when I went to college at the University of Michigan, I was a voice major uh, my freshman year. And at some point during that year, my uh, lifelong friend and uh, 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 not quite boyfriend, he became my boyfriend. Uh, he was my first boyfriend. It's Jeffrey Seller, who later went on to co-produce such uh, little-known musicals as Rent and uh, Avenue Q and a little one that you might have heard of called Hamilton. And Jeffrey, Jeffrey in college suggested that he and I write a musical, that I, was, that I liked musicals and I played the piano, so I was a natural. And uh, it all seemed very bizarre to me, but I said, sure. And we did write a musical together that we showed our teachers and my professors were incredibly encouraging. I, I don't know what they saw, because if you heard those songs, you'd be like, those are terrible. But uh, I wrote a musical when I was uh, 19, and, uh, and that's kind of how it got started. I, I found that when I wrote songs that I, I could dig into a deeper part of myself than I was digging into as a performing artist and I love being a performing artist and have been a pianist and music director and singer and actor in various things all my life. Um, I do love doing it, but uh, I find, I find that my, my real passion and my deepest, my deepest uh, feelings run when I, when I get to write about stuff. And as well, you are also one of the very illustrious composer lyricists out there. Was that always something that you strove to do, was writing music and lyrics? Or did you start with music and then just started realizing, hey, I can do lyrics too? Much like I, my life, uh, tend, uh, now that I'm 54, I can say, you know, I can look at, look at some patterns in my life and, and see more of my life gone by than there will be life left to live. And I don't mean that in a morose kind of way, but it's just reality. And um, I realized like everything, it came uh, slowly and it came at di uh, in different phases. I started out very much not writing text at all. I, I was a composer and, uh, and, and a, an un, you know, uh, unsophisticated one at that. I was I, I was just trying to figure it out when I was in college. And uh, even though I had a very strong musical background, a strong musical education, and played the piano very well, um, I had never really had any formal training um, in music, in a, sorry, in uh, music composition. I, I took a class with the Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, wonderful, great, uh, amazing man and composer, William Bolcom, who was a professor for many years at the University of Michigan, but uh, he acted as a mentor, but I didn't take any formal lessons with him. And 
I got to um, New York and I joined the BMI Musical Theater Workshop. I was fortunate enough to get accepted into that that group and um, continued to be uh, only a composer and work with different people. And I wrote John and Jen with my friend Tom Greenwald. And again, I wasn't the lyricist on that project. And then I discovered uh, I discovered a long form poem in the bookstore at the end of 1995 called The Wild Party. And um, I didn't have any writing partner who wanted to work on it with me. And I decided I was going to write uh, The Wild Party as a musical and make it like cats. I would set poetry to music and make it theatrical. And early in writing The Wild Party, I realized that there wasn't enough in the poem that was in the first person that said, you know, I feel this, I want this. And I started writing my own lyrics and um, showed a couple songs to my friend, Jeffrey Seller. Again, all roads lead to Jeffrey Seller when it comes to <laughs> making musicals for me. And I showed it to my friend, Jeffrey Seller, who's also uh, from Michigan. And uh, uh, Jeffrey said, who wrote the lyrics? And I said, I did. And all he said on the phone was, keep going. You should keep going. And uh, cut to about a year and a half, later um and jeffrey seller and his then business partner kevin mccullum uh took out the professional option and they um actually were the commercial producers attached to the wild party when it got produced at the manhattan theater club so jeffrey and kevin were very instrumental in getting the uh in producing the wild party with the manhattan theater club i'm not gonna lie it makes me so happy to hear like the origin story of how the wild party came to be and how personal it was to you and also how you just kind of fell into writing the lyrics yeah i did uh, it was it's that thing i teach whenever i teach um whenever i work with with young people uh in uh writing writing musicals or writing songs i you know i always encourage them to uh go after the thing that they care about the most and to go after the thing that makes them happy that makes them feel something and um, and in the in the case of the wild party, uh, uh, the, I quit working. I, I I basically I had saved a little bit of money, not very much, but I saved a little bit of money, and I thought nobody's going to ask me to write a musical. It just doesn't happen. Uh, even even it does happen. Fortunately, now for me, people ask me to write musicals, but you still have to go through a process, and also you have to really want to write it. So it has to be something that you really connect to the material, and that's um, that's often uh, challenging. Uh, if if you know if you don't connect to the material, then I don't think you, it's going to be a very good show. And I really connected with the Wild Party and realized that if I didn't sit down and do it, it would not would not get done. And that in order to sit down and do it, I had to somehow I had to uh, basically be a hermit. And I, I took about six months and just committed my my days to writing that musical. And I walked out with about, oh, I don't know, 70 minutes of it, maybe, maybe 70 or 75 minutes of it. Um, I had written a, a whole act one and a portion of act two and was able, got some support to put it, put on a reading in New York city. And that's what started the process. And if I hadn't done that, I, I, I don't think I would have a career as a writer. It really took um, that kind of, focus and that kind of um, determined, dogged determination to to push the mountain, the, you know, the thing up the hill, because it's always pushing the thing up the hill and somebody's got to push it. 
And that's super inspiring to me because there's no one telling you that you should do this. There's a guarantee that you're going to get this show. Like, let me pay you. You just had that fire under you to do this and you succeeded. And that's great. Uh, yeah, I guess I was very fortunate. And um, and again, again I, I do think it's I was deeply passionate about the material. So, you know, there, there's there are people who've loved the wild party and there are people who haven't loved the wild party. And and. And, but and and the the wonderful thing about the wild party, I, I read a uh, I don't know why I read a review recently, but I, I read a review recently. I tend not to read reviews, but I read one recently from a college production at Syracuse University uh, that 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 happened only just recently, and it was a it was a very not, it was a really good review, and and it it was a, a fairly well written review, um, and the writer was uh, clearly understood what the piece was trying to say and but also uh, sort of underscore the fact that it's r-rated that it's not for your grandmother that it's really really you know not no quote-unquote normal musical theater fair and that it, you know that it has the potential to to really upset people and I, I, I was so thrilled I thought wow something I wrote over 20 years ago um, still has the potential to piss people off. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, wow, like that's, I did something, you know, I, I really, I'm really proud of it. You know, it's, it's not a, the story is so simple. It's a, it goes from a to B if that, and, uh, and that wasn't what drew me to it. What drew me to it was what, what was under underneath the other characters and their motivations and what kind of people they had become or who they who they had hoped to be, but didn't become. And, um, that, that, and I wanted to write a musical in a, in a voice that, that I had, that I hadn't seen before. And, and, um, I tried really hard to, to do that. And, and, you know, in some, uh, in some ways I think I succeeded. So I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, I love the wild party very much. And I love it as well. And I speak for many others that love it too. Thank you. Thank you. What is it about her is one of my favorite Broadway musical numbers of all time, and "Make Me Happy" Thank is you. my alarm every morning. Oh my gosh, that's that's quite a rude <laughs> awakening. I mean, it gets you up in the morning, really. I imagine that's true. All right, so what's the next professional show you did after the Wild Party? And as well, is it difficult to let those shows go, let your babies go to other creatives like directors and book writers, and have their input on it? Yeah, I had this wonderful period um, from 1995 to 2000 where I was feeling um, really most of the 90s because of uh, I was learning how to do it and getting things on. And and um, I had been a school teacher. I have a degree in education and I had had a full time job until 1991. And then I started working in the theater, playing the keyboard and uh, playing piano and whatever, anything related to that uh, that I could do to make a living. And but when the wild party opened, um, and it, um, you know, some people, some people, like I said, embraced it and some people didn't, and it didn't transfer to Broadway. And there was another musical, uh, based on the same material uh, that did, that was on Broadway. And it was a very odd, uh, happening. And I, I got, um, emotionally kind of crumbled by all of that experience. It was very, uh, it was very, very challenging for me. Um, and I didn't have another musical in my, in my hopper. I had I only committed to, I had done Charlie Brown 
in the meanwhile. And that was a great, wonderful thing to do and to write the new songs that I did, my new philosophy and Beethoven Day and the new part to You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown and, and all the arrangements, et cetera. And get to, I got nominated for a Grammy for recording the, the recording of that show. And that, that was all a wonderful experience that happened during the Wild Party time as well. But after the Wild Party opened, I was really sad. And um, I got rescued by... Uh, my friend, uh, designer and producer Heidi Ettinger, and the director Susan Schulman, who uh, brought a project, uh, uh, brought a, a musical based on a little princess uh, to me with the writer Brian Crawley, who had written Violet. And um, I was asked to write music only on that project, and I decided to say yes because they um, they were developing with Australian partners, and we got a trip to Australia. It was my first time going to Australia, and. And uh, I felt like, well, I don't have to make as many decisions as I did on the wild party about the characters and the dramaturgy and the story and the action and all that. I can just write the music and let, have a writing partner and that'll be pleasant. Um, but there was a period from somewhere around 2001 to 2007 where I was writing, I wrote several things. I wrote a musical called Jerry Christmas um, with Daniel Goldfarb, who's a wonderful, wonderful playwright who's now writing on uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I think, and um, uh, as well as writing his own plays. But uh, we wrote a musical that we developed a little that couldn't quite get up the ground. I wrote a musical called Asphalt Beach that was um, done at Northwestern University in 2006, and that couldn't quite get up the ground. I wrote the first act of a musical based on the Biddy Boop cartoons uh, with David Lindsay up there uh, was the, the playwright on that. And that didn't get off the ground. And then when I was at Northwestern University working on Asphalt Beach, um, uh, the producer who was running that program at the time is a guy named Stuart Oaken. And Stuart was producing a musical version of The Adams Family. And he took me to lunch and he said, would you like to write the musical lyrics for the Adams Family. And I asked him who else was working on it. And he told me it was Marshall Brickman and Rick Ellis were writing it. And I said, yes, when do I start? And, and so that, that, um, that was the beginning of uh, another phase in my life. And, and I wrote those three other titles I mentioned, um, none of which have been recorded, none of which have been produced. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, Jerry Christmas happened at uh, New York Stage and Film, which is a wonderful developmental place. And Asphalt Beach had a small production at, the, at Northwestern University. Uh, but after that, um, they haven't gone anywhere. And in, in a way, they were growing experiences for me. Uh, I wrote the lyrics and the music to both of them. It was an opportunity to continue to get better. And, and they led me to the Adams Family, which has been uh, the most um, miraculous uh, success, uh, despite... Um, despite, you know, the, the fact that it, um, it didn't get the best reviews and it, uh, some people, again, it's basically the story of every, everything. Some people like it, some people don't, but, um, the fact that the Adams family is the most produced musical in North America throughout the last four years is, uh, a uh, testament to how successful it has been and how many productions it's had thousands of productions worldwide. And, um, it uh, just continues to to grow. Actually, we we keep getting more and more people want to do it, and um, uh, that that was the beginning of a, a next phase. And so I kind of uh, got past the sad wild party thing. It took me five or six years to kind of shake that off, and um, 
get jump back into you know really making things that I really uh, really cared about and really really wanted to 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 get right. And Adam's Family is your first musical theater job where you adapted a full musical that was also a culturally engraved piece of the zeitgeist. Well, Charlie. Charlie Brown was a bit of a dry run. Uh, you know, they didn't write the whole thing. So I did ha- already have experience of dealing with famous characters. Um, and again, I had told you I wrote the first act of a thing about Betty Boop. But I think she's less famous. She's sort of known by what she looks like, but not so much by what her behavior is. Um, and the Adams Family, yeah, that was the first time. And I didn't even let you get to the question. So sorry. Go ahead. Well, what's the question? No worries. Um, basically, the question is, do you find it difficult to musicalize things that are so ingrained into popular culture because there is that expectation coming in and you feel like uh, I, my version of Gomez is like this and maybe theirs won't be that? Uh, yeah, that was a, that was part of the challenge. There were a lot of challenges on the Adams Family uh you know, they were all challenges I wanted to take on, not the least of which was the side, you know, it was a $15 million musical um, that I was writing the musical lyrics for with very famous people at the center of it. Um, and particularly Nathan Lane, who was just absolutely magnificent in, in every way. But at the same time, he's made, you know, a big theater, huge theater star. And, and there was a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, I had never had that experience before working with somebody that famous. And, um, and so there was a lot to learn there. And there was a lot to learn in terms of the audience's expectations and what they think they know about the characters because of the television show and the films. And um, we learned a lot when we did it in Chicago. We were the most, we ran eight and a half weeks in Chicago for our out of town trial. And um, while the show was still um, going through growing pains, it was still the second most successful out-of-town tryout up to that point, um, second only to the producers, another Nathan Lane-led vehicle. And um, it sold so well that uh, the producer was able to give us um, the amount of rehearsal weeks and time we needed to make the significant changes that we wanted to make in order to get it to Broadway. So um, it was a, it was just a a really, really complex process. Uh, the director was, the directors were fired. And thank God Jerry Dax came on board because he really was instrumental in helping write the ship. And the audiences really embraced the show. We were on the uh, 10 days after we opened, there was an article about the Adams family on the cover of the New York times. Um, and it said that, you know, it didn't matter what the critics had to say that audiences loved it and that, um, people were flocking to see the Adams family. And that was true. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was remarkable how it was successful out of the gate and people embraced it. And we had a, a pleasant run on Broadway and uh, a really successful national tour. And then I've seen it. Uh, there are three recordings, one in Spanish, one in German, and one in, of course, in English. And, um, I've seen it in Portuguese, Spanish, Swedish, German, Japanese, um, and um, it's been translated into probably six or seven other languages, uh, productions I have not seen, um, but uh, it has really, really been a remarkable uh, 
a remarkable thing in my life. So I'm very grateful that it happened. And I, and I don't imagine, I don't imagine that I'm going to do it again. I don't imagine, I don't know, but I don't think anybody, even if somebody came to me and said, Oh, we've got the rights to, and you know, name another set of famous characters. I, 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 I may yet, I don't know. We'll see how life goes, but it was it was a challenge that I, I learned a lot on and I did it and now I'm ready to do other things. And in fact, I followed that up with Big Fish only um, only three years later, Big Fish opened on Broadway. Yes, and that is another very popular film that you're adapting into a brand new medium. As well, you are working with the original collaborator on the film, John August, who wrote the screenplay for the film and has that connection to both the story and the characters. Did you find it hard to collaborate with someone that is really close to that and adapt it to a new medium, or was it much easier? No, it's actually wonderful because John... John had uh, before the book uh, on which the film is based before the book Big Fish had even been published John was given a copy to read and um, decided he was going to uh, make it into a movie and so John knew John knew the characters inside and out and that was a very very great thing to have in a collaborator who really knew who the characters were and um, and and was also very very eager to reinterpret uh, uh, Big Fish from the uh, screen to the stage and um, didn't, you know, never, ever walked in with a, a sense of, well, this is how it should be done because I did it in the movie. John was always open and he's also uh, incredibly musical. He plays the piano and has a wonderful bass baritone voice. And so we often had a great deal of fun learning the songs together and um, and, and he would be very, uh, more really than any collaborator I've had. He was, he had, a, he had opinions about the music that were, that were, that he could, um, he could back up with, with answers. And if he said he didn't think that was the right piece of music, he would say why. And I would say, okay, well, I'll write something else. And, um, it was, um, you know, I think, I think that collaboration, uh, was a, a very successful one. And again, Big Fish, uh, despite its brief uh, uh, sojourn on Broadway, um, has had a, a British, a London-based production starring Kelsey Grammer. And then um, it, again, is being translated into multiple languages. In fact, uh, I'm going to Korea to see it at the end of this year, a production directed by Scott Schwartz that's going to run in Korea for several months. And uh followed by a Japanese production that's also going to run for several months, um, which uh, several months doesn't sound very long by Broadway standards, but um, it's, it's by South Korean and Japanese standards. That's a significant amount of time to run a show that people don't particularly title people aren't completely familiar with. So um, Big Fish and also in uh, what they call stock and amateur licensing high schools and, uh, and theater camps and all that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's just growing and growing and more and more people are aware of it and want to do it. So um, I love, yeah, I love that show. And I, and the process was, was uh, incredible, particularly uh, not only with John, but with our two producers, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen, who had also produced the movie. So they, they had that experience twice and um, like John and then Susan Stroman, who um, really helped us, um, you know, figure out exactly what it was we, we wanted to do with the show and, and uh, had just such a vivid imagination for it. 
All right, before we wrap up, because we are getting to that time, I do want to talk about um, I Am Harvey Milk for a little mm-hmm. bit. I'm just curious of the origin story to that project, how it came about, and how different it is from everything else that you've done previously and since. Uh, I Am Harvey Milk came about um, because I got an email from Tim Seelig. Uh, Dr. Timothy Seelig is the music director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, and in 2011, he had only been... Uh, in San Francisco for about a year running the chorus. And he had reached out to a group of, or the plan was at least to reach out to a group of composers and ask each of them to write a five minute piece based on their observations of Harvey Milk. And when he contacted me, I called him and I said, I am really humbled and grateful. You asked me to write a five minute piece, but I don't want to write a five minute piece. I want to write a 60 minute piece. And he said, uh, he wanted to know why. And we talked for a while. Uh, 2011 had been a, uh, my father died in 2007 and, um, my, uh, my personal life had just gotten, um, very, uh, jumbled, uh, following that for a few years. And in 2011, I had a, a, a really rough personal year. And as I was coming out of it, I got that email and I, I did feel very, um, I felt that email was very uh, spiritually connected and it felt very much like um, I was being uh, led in a direction, a new direction and, uh, or dare I say pulled in a new direction. Um, And, uh, and that's for you, Adams family fans out there. And um, I, um, Tim said that the commission uh, was with uh, nine other choruses across the country and that they'd have to, uh, approve the idea of me writing the whole piece. So he spoke to them, got back to me, said, yeah, thumbs up. And I, um, I then had that, you know, oh my God, now I've got to write it uh, feeling. And I realized uh, I had a few fixed things. One was I had a chorus of 300 men and uh, they stood still for the most part. They did some choreography, but they can't move on and off. Um, there, you know, too many people and they're, there and they're on the stage. So th- that had to happen. And I wanted there to be some kind of soloists and, um, built, uh, uh, uh my version, which had, uh, somebody playing Harvey Milk, somebody playing a young version, a child version of Harvey Milk and, a, a woman character who played for this amalgam of women in Harvey Milk's life. And then I realized I didn't want to write a bio musical. I didn't want to write something that was uh, chronologically uh, in order because um, the movie Milk uh, had been uh, so wildly uh, uh, successful and also just so good. And I didn't want to compete with that. And so I decided I was going to pick that year or almost a year in his life when he was the, on the, board of supervisors in San Francisco. He had been elected to start at the beginning of 1978 and assassinated in November of 1978. And I structured a 12-movement work, which represented the 11 months he was in office, plus a prologue movement. And then developed it in New York. I wrote it I wrote it and wanted to hear it, so I pulled together a group of people and we, um, we did it in a rehearsal studio and I invited 50 or 75 people, um, including my friend and colleague Bruce Cohen again, who had produced with Dan Jinks again, had produced um, the movie Milk. And uh, Bruce uh, wanted to get involved and has been involved ever since in, in, in I Am Harvey Milk. 
and its follow-up, Unbreakable, which we did just a, a year ago, and not even a year ago. And uh, I played Harvey Milk in the reading, and it was kind of a test. It was I, I was curious, like, to see should I do it. Tim Seelig said. Uh, we think you should do it. And I said, I don't know. Let me test it out in New York in January. The The premiere was in June and of 2013. And I did it in the studio. And the first thing that Bruce Cohen came up to me, said, I want to be involved. And then he looked at me and goes, and you're going to play Harvey, right? You're going to, you're, you're playing Harvey, right? And it was very sweet. And I, and I said, yes, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it in, um, in San Francisco. And then I ended up doing it. We did it with 550 singers at Disney Hall in Los Angeles. We did it with 700 singers in Denver as part of the Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses um, and 5,000 people in the audience. And uh, I did it with Christian Chenoweth and the Orchestra of St. Luke's um, at Lincoln Center in 2014. And so uh, I Am RV Milk has been a big departure and a wonderful uh, a wonderful change to, to write something that's deeply uh, theatrical and, and, and interesting to me, but not a traditional, quote-unquote, traditional musical. And also Unbreakable, as well as I Am Harvey Milk, are both available on iTunes and all the other forms of music. And it is absolutely incredible. I highly recommend it. Fantastic job, Mr. Lippa. Really, it is truly fantastic work. Thank you. I'll be doing, uh, I'll be doing Unbreakable in Austin, Texas, uh, the um, 19, 30, 40, 15, 17th, 18th, somewhere on there um, in May. And uh, it's being done by 10 choruses across the country uh, since the San Francisco Games course uh, premiered it. And then um, Bruce Cohen, my frequent colleague and friend, and I are pulling together a uh, production team, uh, and we're going to be doing it uh, in New York City, hopefully in June of 2020. And um, that will be um, more more on that soon. When I can when I can say. Now, here's a little craft question. Um, as a lyricist, do you have a set of rules for your lyrics, like they have to all be perfect rhymes? Or is it more like free-flowing, like if it feels right, it feels right, and it doesn't really matter if it's like always perfect rhymes? Uh, both. Um, and um, I, I think perfect rhymes, uh, you know, it's... Um, it, my, my rule is this. My rule is this. It, it is... I learned it from Frank Lesser, uh, actually, not from him personally, but some, what, what, something I read about it, which is that lyrics are a, um, a train on a car, a, a, a car on a train and, uh, you know, a boxcar on a, on, a, on a long train. And when you're sitting at the train stop and you watch the train go by, if you miss one of the cars, the car, it's moving, it's moving, uh, you know, let's say it's going to the right, it's moving to the right. And, and if you focus too long on one car, when you go back to the center and your head goes back to the center, you, you've missed some because they're moving at a certain pace and lyrics move at a certain pace, depending on the song at different paces for different songs. And if you get tripped up by anything, then whether it be rhyme or logic or, or definition, uh, if you use a word that people don't know, and that's not to argue that you shouldn't use words that people don't know, but it's not like a book or a poem where you can stop 
and look at it and look it up. You can't. It's going by in front of you. And so for me, that is the key for lyrics is that um, they, they go by at a certain pace and you, you only get one chance to make that impression on the audience. And if they miss it, then you have failed. So that's up to each individual lyricist to decide what they think their audience can, uh, can comprehend. All right, for my next one, how would you describe the difference between writing a comedic song and a dramatic song and how you go about them? Which one is more easy? Which one is more of a challenge? I'm just curious. Comedy is much more scientific, um, and I'm not the first person to say that. Uh, it, it, you, you, there's an architecture, and, and, and you know, my new philosophy, I'll say, or, or, or the old-fashioned love story from the Wild Party, there's, you have to figure out what the punchline is like, like the way you tell a joke. You have to, what, what are you, what, what is the end? What are you getting to? And where the, where, how are you telling the whole story of the song and where, what's the, where are the laughs? Um, you know, laughs can't come. Um, it's really not a funny song. If the, uh, well, it's not a funny lyric. If the laughs are coming from behavior, unless the lyric is about the behavior and um, behavior can be funny, but it's dependent on the actor and the director. Um, and the, the goal is to make the words themselves funny, for me at least, um, when I'm writing an out-and-out funny song. Um, and uh, that's the answer to that question. I think um, writing dramatic, quote-unquote, songs where that don't have to, it's tricky. Funny songs, you get feedback right away. The audience tells you if it's funny because they they laugh, um, or 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 worse, they don't. And um, and then you're like, well, that's not funny. And you after you hear it go by twice and nobody laughs, you're like, well, that's clearly not funny, no matter who sings it. And I learned that from Nathan in particular, Nathan Lane. Like if he sang a lyric and it wasn't funny, and Nathan Lane couldn't get a laugh, I'm like, then it's not it's not funny. And um, and so that was a good lesson working with Nathan. Uh, got a lot of good lessons. Uh, but a song you mentioned, what is it about her? You know, what is it about her is um, I wrote, it never changed. I wrote it like that in one sitting. Um, I wrote that lyric uh, all first, and then I wrote a piece of music that went with it, and it never, like, that was that. And uh, so it, in some, I Don't Need a Roof from Big Fish, same. It just, in three hours, I wrote I Don't Need a Roof. And uh, whereas my new philosophy took three days um, and the bigger, the bigger, like crazy thing, lots of things happening in a song, like one normal night, that whole sequence in the Adams family, that literally, I think that took me three weeks to, to make that sequence because I, I had to, I had to figure out how it went from the beginning to the end and how it all made sense and involved everybody and still felt like a song. All right, now here's the last question, and it is the most generic question, the one that everyone would expect me to ask, but I gotta ask it. What advice would you give to anyone coming up in the musical theater world trying to be a composer or lyricist much like you? Uh, right, 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 right. Don't, don't, don't wait for somebody to, you know, oh, oh, oh they told us that we, they were going to commission us or they, they were going to give us production and then they, they never answered us and we sent it to the theater and they, they, didn't, they didn't put it on and or they told us maybe next season. I'm like, oh, I don't care. Write another one. 
stop sitting around. Don't like expect anybody to do anything for you and put your own show on. Um, I did that with the write a, write a show that you can put on yourself the first time. Um, so do it with two or three or four actors because you can put on your own show with two or three or four actors. And um, that's what I did with John and Jen. And um, that's what Jason Robert Brown did with uh, Songs for New World. Um, he started just showing those songs off in cabarets and clubs and put, start putting a show together. Um, my friend Benjamin Scheuer, who wrote and started the lion. That's a one man show. He was able to just show it to people because he was in the room. Um, and that was his first musical. Um, so, um, though that's my advice, write, 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 and put your own show on. All right. That was a fantastic interview, Mr. Lippa. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. Thank you. Um, is there anything else you want to say, spread to the audience, let send them to make them download anything like that? Oh, just be, just be kind. Just be kind. Be, people are out there making all kinds of things. I'm the president of the Dramatist Guild Foundation, and it's my great, my great honor to serve uh, writers across, across the country who make plays and musicals. And, and it's taught me that uh, my job is not to judge things. My job is to support. My job is to help others uh, to grow their thing. And if I don't like it, well, who cares? I don't, you know, I don't like you know, lobster that doesn't, you know, some people would think that that that's ridiculous, but I don't like lobster. So I'm not going to go talk about how much I don't like lobster that other people shouldn't eat it. Um, uh, just be supportive. If you're making musicals, if you know people making musicals, if you want to make a musical, just be kind. It doesn't hurt. Well, Mr. Lippa, thank you for coming on to our show. Thank you for schlepping down to our level and chatting with me on this podcast. It really means a lot. Well, thanks for taking the time and I really appreciate it. And that concludes our interview with Andrew Lippa. Thank you for listening. Feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, all of that. We also have a Patreon where we'll have more interviews coming out as well as the usual Musicals with Cheese show. We'll have a normal episode coming up this Friday that I'm really excited about and it's going to be really great. So thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time on Musicals with Cheese. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.